I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and very excited tonight. We have the pleasure of having some real talent who's going to perform a uh, musical number for us, Bob Villarreal. 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 And uh, Bob is also going to give us uh, an opening prayer. Father, we just bless you and magnify your name, Lord, because you know our heart and you want us from the abundance of our heart, Lord Jesus, to worship and praise your holy name of whom you are more than uh, worthy, Lord. I ask that you bless and sanctify tonight our fellowship and your most holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> It's only a tiny rosebud, a flower of God's design. Yet I cannot unfold its petals with these clumsy hands of mine. The secret of unfolding flowers is not known to such as I. The flower God opened so sweetly would in my hand fade and die if I cannot unfold this rosebud, this flower of God's design. Then how can I think I have wisdom to unfold this life of mine? So look to him for his leading each moment of every day. And I trust him for his guidance each step of this pilgrim's way the pathway that lies before me my heavenly father knows so i'll trust him to unfold 
each moment just as he unfolds the rose Beautiful song, Bob, and beautiful performance. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Really quickly, you know that we have books, If My Kingdom Were of This World, My Servants Would Fight, Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face-to-Face, -face. I Was a Born-Again Mormon. It's Not the End of the World is available online for free. Download at www.hotm.tv. You can also get uh, The End of Material Religion. Uh, it's a workbook if you just email us. But... The book we're leading up to is Knife to a Gunfight and uh, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. We hope you'll consider it, uh, challenge it, test it, question it, refute it, disagree with it, or agree with it. It's up to you, but we want to know what's available to you, and we hope you'll take advantage of that. How about let's go to the whiteboard. I'm trying to open up with a whiteboard discussion each week, and, uh, and so we're going to hit that quickly. We'll... Uh, we all start as children, in, uh, and we learn a lot. We get a lot of instructions. There's a big debate is whether we are tabula rasa, we come into this world blank slate, or if we come, as Plato talked about, having certain forms of character built into us. It's a debate that everybody has. But uh, as children, we start to learn a number of things, and some of those things are frightful reactions our parents have, Religion has tales of terror that the world is full of great danger, and it is, and there's tremendous reason to fear. And so I want to just give a, sort of a, a little illustration here, and just imagine that uh, here we are, and we cling desperately uh, to these ideas that we are taught, because we're told if you don't, you will, if you don't cling, you will fall. And you will fall and you will die and you will hurt. It's almost like we are constantly being told that below our feet is this horrible deep chasm. It's wide. And God forbid, if you let go of the things you have been taught, cradle to grave, there's a probability you'll never recover. And so we all begin life from our parents and our teachers and our friends and our religions and we are told things about God. Some parents teach children there's no God. Uh, some people teach Jesus that God uh, is uh, multitudinous, like the Hindus, or that there is uh, one God and only one, that Jesus was not God, the Muslims, uh, Allah. Uh, others teach Jesus, and, and so there's all these things, and, and we have a stronghold that says, God is this. And we have another stronghold that says, this is the truth. And we have another one that says, never, ever do that. And always do this. So people find themselves terrified as, they, as children. They learn all this stuff. And this is a stronghold. Well, what happens is, as we grow, we get higher and higher. This, we grow up. And we are still up here. And we are clinging to these things. But now, the the fall from it is much, much, much further. And we are, as we've built our whole life on, the, on, on all these clinging, 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 clinging as we've grown up. 
And now we look down and we say, wow, it is really, really a long way. And if I go, it's going to be ugly. We've taught our children the same things that we learn. We reiterate these same things because it's the best uh, we can do. We reinforce. And now our children are fearing. Every now and again, there are people. Sometimes it happens here. Sometimes in the teen years it happens. Sometimes in adulthood. And those people say, you know, there must be another way to see things. Maybe there's something else that I haven't considered. Or God couldn't possibly be what I have been told that he is. Or I fear that this is unreasonable. Or they say, I'm tired of clinging to this thing so tightly. I'm really sick of it. And, and I don't care what, what's going to happen. I'm going to let go. I want to be free. I want the truth. And, and they say, God, they God, help, God help me. And so what they do is they let go. And it is a terrifying leap to let go of everything that you have been taught from the cradle. And you say, I don't care. You let go. You let go of the strongholds. You let go of what society demands. You let go of playing church. You let go of plain religious person. You let go of doctrinal oppression. You let go of your parents, false gods, ego. And the fall is frightening. But you've done it. The thing that is interesting is that the only way that such a person will learn to fly with the Spirit, God in charge, is to let go of a lot of stuff. And most people are not willing to do it. It's in the letting go and letting God that you get your wings mid-flight and you learn to fly yourself. And you learn to trust in God and have that relationship with Him. But it takes the willingness to say, you know, I've been taught that I am going to burn in hell forever if I don't cling to this religion. Or I'm, I've been taught I'm going to lose my family if I don't cling to this or all these other things. And so uh, the lesson from the board tonight is on the things that you're suspicious of, investigate them, challenge them, look into them, question everything. It doesn't matter. Question it. God is not a weak God. He's not afraid of questions. He will help you. And when you see that you have been gripping a lie for most of your life or part of your life or any amount of your life, let go and learn to fly. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. I just want to reiterate something that struck people last week, and it bears repeating. How can we tell, or as believers, if our doctrine is correct? Um, there's a number of different ways that people will say, this is how you tell, you do this, you do that. But in the end, what is the best, in my opinion, and it's different, way to tell if your doctrine is correct? I would suggest that if your interpretation of the doctrine 
leads to or manifests itself in love of God and love of man, you have interpreted the doctrine correctly. If you maintain a doctrine that does not lead to love of God and love of man, you have misinterpreted the purpose, meaning, value of the doctrine that is causing you to be less loving or whatever it is. I think it's a barometer by which we all could say, this is how I'm going to judge what my doctrine is. To me, it's the new litmus test for theological stances. Maybe we should say it's the way individuals can privately determine the eternal value of any given doctrinal stance. In other words, if the belief contributes to the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the singular fruit of the Spirit, which is love, colon, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, then the way it is working in you has been properly applied. But if it contributes to arrogance, meanness, anger, impatience, aggressiveness, doubt, intemperance, pride, gossiping, judging, arguing, debating constantly, then somehow we have probably misinterpreted the doctrine that we are thinking of. So just a reiteration, I think it's a good one. All right, continuing on our topic of the Holy Spirit, remember in the Multiple dozens of times the word spirit is used in the New Testament. It is always in the gender neutral, making the description of the spirit it rather than he. Only four times is it not in the gender neutral. And those four times are all in the book of John, and we talked about those last week. And we explained why they are in the masculine. Because of this non-gender specific way the Spirit is described in the Greek, it appears to have been fairly obvious to early believers that the Holy Spirit was not considered a person or individual, but a, uh, what, what, how they determined what the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament. It was the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord. That's how it was seen in the Old Testament. Key to Trinitarianism is the Holy Spirit is seen as the third separate and distinct being, essence, person, personality of the Godhead, rather than the Spirit of God himself. There's a distinction. In his book, Theology for a Community of God, Stanley Grintz, a Baptist theologian, writes that, quote, the personhood of the Holy Ghost didn't become official church dogma until the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D., it was here that as a means to systematize the faith into a uniform body of beliefs that a number of arguments were formalized into creeds and then over time enforced, even brutally enforced, upon people who sought acceptance in the body as believers in Christ. Today it has become quite necessary for most Christians to fully embrace this assessment of God and His Spirit. But prior to the fourth century, uh, and going back to Moses, it seems from everything we've talked about, the Spirit of the Lord was seen as exactly that, the Spirit of the Lord. 
okay, in the neuter general. Uh, the gender neuter. Okay, I had a Jewish uh, Christian call last week, and he told me that he enjoys these talks, and he asked this question, when will people get that there is one God, end of story? And I replied, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, moving out to Joseph Smith's day, Christians laboring under creedal Trinitarianism continued to see the Holy Spirit as a divine influence of God, though a person, because, because of that, but they still saw the Holy Spirit as a di divine influence of God and never seemed to describe him or it as a ghost in human form, okay? Now, to Trinitarian Christians then and even today, the Holy Spirit was more of a center of consciousness or a will or an essence, that's I've heard it described that way, than an actual separate being or person, However, to Binitarians and Unitarians, Christians, uh, if they are Christians, the Holy Spirit was simply a manifestation of God's power or as God's divine influence upon man. Didn't take on that persona, that person, that uh, center of consciousness per, uh, uh, form. So it was a Unitarian minister in 1812 named uh, Noah Worcester who said, this was Joseph Smith's early age years, quote, if God is represented by a metaphor of the natural sun, then the rays which emanate and proceed from the sun are an emblem of the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father. Like the rays of the sun, these divine emanations illuminate, quicken, invigorate, and fructify. Fructify. I like that word. Fructify. It's a new one, isn't it? Uh, Binitarian David Miller also called the Holy Ghost a divine emanation of God. And to be honest, even Trinitarians who uh, continue the same thoughts today regard the Holy Spirit as an emanation flowing from the Father and the Son and not an actual being. Now, I know strict scholarly Trinitarians will say, no, actual being. But if you ask people who just say, who don't know the Bible that well or haven't learned about Trinitarianism that well, and you just say, well, what's the Holy Spirit? They'll say, it's God's Spirit. That's just how they explain God's Spirit. It's not until they learn creedal Trinitarianism where they say the Holy Spirit is the third person being of the Godhead. So amidst all this comes Joseph Smith, all right? And this is what we've been doing this year is we're comparing what Christianity teaches from its history all the way through in its different forms, and then what Smith did. And he comes along, and just as it has been proven in biblical Christianity, the concept and understanding of the Holy Spirit in Mormonism morphed over time. All right? It changed. The earliest LDS revelations and teachings on the Holy Ghost, that's what the LDS call the Holy Spirit, appeal to traditional Christian terminology and emphasize its illuminating and quickening nature rather than traits uh, and, and, and assign those traits to an it rather than a he. That's early Mormonism, discussions on the Holy Spirit. The Book of Mormon, for example, refers to the Holy Ghost, 2 Nephi 32.5, Alma 34.38, and 39.6 in the neuter gender, it. It is used in early writings, Joseph Smith, of the Holy Spirit, as does the Doctrine and Covenants and the early revelations. Um, LDS theologian, uh, theological historian Charles Harrell says it this way, the evidence suggests 
that early Latter-day Saints understood the Holy Ghost to be a spiritual power or influence, not a personage. Okay? So they went through the same transition in Mormon history that we can see transition from the Old Testament to the New to Constantine to today. Same thing. So while Mormons today have a number of ways to interpret their scriptures, because their scripture speaks of the Holy Ghost, the light of Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Truth. And all of those titles, late Apostle McConkie said, you have to look at the context of the scripture to understand which, what those titles really mean. Uh, to somebody who was an early Latter-day Saint, McConkie's advice would seem twisted. To them, all of those titles were simply the Spirit of the Lord. Um, we got to remember that founder Joseph Smith himself defined the Holy Ghost in Lectures on Faith, which were published in 1835. This is a quote. Ready? The mind of God, adding that only the Father and Son are personages, uh, and the Holy Spirit does not have a body, is not a being, is not a person. That's what he said in Lectures of Faith, 1835. In Mormonism today, the mind of God would more be equated with, the LD, with what the LDS might call the light of Christ or the influence of the Holy Spirit, but not the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost itself in Mormonism is a being, okay? The LDS doctrine that the Holy Ghost is actually a person or being was first suggested by Joseph Smith, but in 1841, 11 years after he founded the church, when he said about the Godhead that the three were separate bodies. So he's morphed. He's changed. First he said only the Father and Son are personage, personages. And then uh, six years later he says the three are separate bodies. A morphing, a change. Then in March of the same year, Smith added a new twist and he said the Son, and the spelling on this is correct, the Son had a tabernacle and so had the Father, but the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit without tabernacle. That's how he spelled it in his writings. He wasn't, he wasn't a great, great speller sometimes. So then in January of 1843, Smith gives a far more clear definition of the LDS view of the Holy Spirit and says, the Holy Ghost is a personage in the form of a personage. So he gives it twice there. He makes sure you understand uh, all the way out in 1843 before he dies. And then in April the same year, he gets even clearer and he says this. Now listen, the Holy Ghost is a personage and a person cannot have the personage of the Holy Ghost in his heart. A man may receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost may descend upon a man but not to tarry with him. That means not inside of him. Okay, the Holy Ghost cannot tarry inside of a person, Smith said, because the Holy Ghost is a person. And it's impossible for one spirit person to fit inside the spirit of another. And so he said he can give the gifts, his gifts to people, but not himself abide. So we note that the Benetarian and Unitarian description of God being the Son and the Holy Spirit being like raised from the Son have now been adopted by Smith. 
And that's how I taught it as a missionary for the LDS Church. The Holy Spirit is like the sun. There's only, he's only in one place. That's where he is, his per, special individual person. But we can feel the rays of the sun all over the world. That's how the Holy Spirit is. So he adopted the Benetarian and Unitarian uh, ideas that were around at his time, and he incorporated them into his theology in the late 1840s, or mid-1840s. So what's interesting about this is Smith declared that the person of the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in the heart of an individual, and this was published in Doctrine and Covenants 130, 22-23, but when it was published, the LDS Church reworded it and gave it the opposite meaning. And what they said is the Holy Spirit is a spirit, so it can dwell inside of a human being. They changed Smith's later revelations and said the Holy Spirit can dwell in the heart. In 1850s, years after Smith's death, LDS Church historians changed his original work, and that's what's in the Doctrine and Covenants today, their modification of Smith's original uh, uh, revelation. In the end, the teaching that the Holy Ghost is an actual personage of spirit wasn't widely touted until 1856, and Joseph Smith's real words weren't published until 1876. In fact, Orson Pratt, LDS Apostle, said in 1855, he knew of no revelation clarifying that the Holy Ghost was a person. So they were going through morphine and trying to get information out and holding back stuff, and, and that's how it goes. So... Uh, what happened was the LDS teaching that possessing a physical body is necessary for salvation. Possessing a physical body is necessary for salvation. Based on Doctrine and Covenants 93, 33 through 34, and Doctrine and Covenants 131, Joseph Smith's teaching on the corporeal nature of God, and what he said is God has to have a body in order to progress. Jesus had to come and get a body in order to progress. Human beings had to come and get a body in order to uh, progress. Uh, 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 my sister Suzanne, she gave me, lent me this album. It's called My Turn on Earth. It was really popular uh, back in the 70s, I think 70s, uh, and with Mormon people. And there's a song on this. I just saw this. It's, it's a song called Everybody Ought to Have a Body. <laughs> Everybody Ought to Have a Body. A body's the only way to go. Oh, everybody ought to have a body. Having a body really helps you grow. And it goes on with some really horrible lyrics. But in any case, the having a body is like essential in Mormonism in so much that Jesus had to, had to come and get one in order to progress, as do all human beings. So this teaching, this caused Smith to say in a public address in August of 1843, this is right before he died, the Holy Ghost is now in a state of probation, which if he should perform in righteousness, he may pass through the same or a similar course of things that the Son has. So now he, what he said is, listen, we need to get bodies. The Holy Spirit, if he does his job right, he may fulfill the same role the Son did in maybe some other planet or some other place is the conjecture. This teaching is in harmony with the LDS idea of continual progression and bodies needed to be have. Interestingly enough, in all his talks about the Holy Ghost passing through a probationary state, Joseph Smith never said the Holy Spirit was a spirit child of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother like Jesus was. We don't find that. It wasn't until 1844 
close to the day of his death, that the doctrine of spirit birth in the pre-existence for Mormons began to emerge more fully, and only then did it become normal for LDS to think of the Holy Ghost like a human-shaped being, one of God's spiritual children. So this is down the road for them. Finally, in 1857, Heber C. Kimball, a counselor to Brigham Young, said matter-of-factly, just to settle the whole thing, the Holy Ghost is a man. This is a quote. He is one of the sons of our Father and our God. So, boom. So now we have it finally. Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young's counselor, says, look it. The Holy Ghost, Smith starts out and saying, not a personage. Then he says a personage. Now you can't dwell in you. And now, he said, now Kimball bringing it all together says, he's a man, I mean a pre-existent spirit, and he's the child of the Father. Okay? So the LDS idea of pre-mortal existence, we're going to get to in two weeks or three weeks, that talks all about this pre-mortal existence and who were spirit children. But there definitively in Mormon doctrine, the Holy Spirit like Jesus, like Satan, like you and I, all of us were spirit children begotten by God the Father and his wives and put out there, and that is where the Holy Spirit came from, and ultimately the Holy Spirit will need to get a body. Once Smith died, speculations started popping up in Mormonism about the real identity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you want to read Vern G. Swanson's book, The Development of the Concept of the Holy Ghost in Mormon Theology, page 97, in that day, they thought Joseph Smith was the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's where speculations can go. When you're going to speculate, you know, you know, I think Smith's the Holy Spirit. But today, the LDS teaching, today, modern LDS teaching on the Holy Ghost is that he's a personage of spirit in human form. And because of this, he cannot take the, any other shape including that of a dove. Additionally, his person, like the sun, can only be in one place at one time, but his influence can be felt around the world. But he can only give his gifts to people who have been baptized by a Latter-day Saint who holds their priesthood authority and then has been confirmed and given the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, at their uh, baptism and confirmation. So, uh, so there we have it. The Old Testament to the New Testament last week of the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Lord, and from the Spirit of the Lord to the Hagias Numa, the Holy Spirit, in a, from the neuter gender, and therefore from an it to a he in four places, to Constantine codifying doctrine that induces uniformity, to Smith and his original views, to Mormonism today essentially agreeing with Trini uh, creedal Trinitarianism concerning the Holy Spirit with uh, the added similarities being that it is not an it, but a he, an actual person, and that he is a separate personality from the Father and from the Son. But the LDS add the extra flair that this is a male personality who's really the offspring of uh, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, who ultimately will, according to Joseph Smith, if he did his job right, get a body and then move on to do the things that Jesus has done. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have Bradley from the UK asking an off-air question, but let's take a look at this while the operators clear your calls. Like a growing tree, 
We've gone through some stages in our approach to doing church. For the past few years, we've remained at campus. Christian anarchists, meaning to prayerfully understand scripture. After everything has been said and done, we find this last acronym far too limiting. After all, he is probably the only Christian anarchist in North America. So after 10 years, campus today, and hopefully for the decades to come, should be known as Christian meeting to prayerfully understand scripture. Come as you are. You know, everybody who comes to campus readily uh, affiliates with that last term my daughter decided to throw in there. It's very funny. Uh, we have an off-air comment, but it's not from Bradley. Bradley's calling from the UK, so we're going to take his call first. Bradley, what's happening? Hey, Sean. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Oh, that American accent, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just call. I had a couple of questions. Um, I'm I'm currently based in the UK, so excuse my accent. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I'd like to quickly start just by saying thank you for your show. Um, like the impact that you make may not always be completely clear, but it was your video single-handedly that made me move away from uh, LDS, which I was coming close to. So. Your accent, my brother, is so thick that my untrained ears, you're going to have to talk like I'm in third grade and you're an English professor. Um, okay. That didn't work. <laughs> um, no. Um, so I, I was in contact with missionaries. I've been a Christian since I was 15. Um, I made the decision myself. And then I started to learn from them at the age of 21, uh, meet with them, challenge them with the idea of teaching them, and then they started to then inadvertently brainwash me. Um, wow. And it was since exploring your show that I actually got a much clearer picture of God um, wow. and, and how the LDS church operates. And um, it made me really sad because the people that I saw which were investigators, which is an odd term to use, um, typically came across as vulnerable adults, and, and that's really concerning. So my question would be, how can we, as actual real Christians, not the fake ones like they call themselves, prevent vulnerable adults from being subject to the use of the psychological tools used by the LDS Church that's a in, great... a in a proactive sense? That's a great question, and you know, we try our best, and I know Sandra Tanner does hers, and Earl Erskine does his, and maybe over there you need to do yours. I mean, the only difference between me and you is I, someone had a video camera, and we started it up, and we did it, and we were on TV, but you can do the same thing, and I mean, if the Lord is moving you, and you're questioning how can we help protect these gullible people from the psychological manipulations of the LDS Church, it's in your power by the Spirit to do it, brother. So I challenge you to do it. Well, I'll take on that challenge. I'm, I'm just thinking of ways. My, my blessings is in things like website design and stuff. So maybe 
exploring that further would be really uh, a good approach. The, the second thing I had to ask was, um, but I understand that, um, that those who are subject to the teachings of the LDS Church, um, they act hard of hearing when you tell them any truth. So if you start asking them, um, quoting scripture, they'll quote one out of context, and then you'll have about 20 million other verses which counteract what they're saying. Um, how would you approach teaching the true doctrine of Christianity to LDS members in a way, because I know that they are completely under the influence of false prophets and, and some guy in a nice suit, so how can we help them? Like, I know it's difficult, I understand that, and I know that they are completely believing that they're helping us and truly following God, which is yeah. not a nice concept, but how can we really help them? Uh, I think I have a lot of compassion for all these people at the same time. I can hear that compassion, Bradley. I would suggest, um, well, just let me put it to you this way. We got an email yesterday from a guy, and he said, I've read the Bible completely. I'm LDS. The Bible completely supports Mormonism, and I want to have a debate with you, and let's start doing it through email. And I wrote him back and said, we're not going to do that. And the reason is, Bradley, is because Scripture tells us plainly, if you don't have spiritual eyes, if you have natural eyes, and you have a predisposition to believe what you want to believe, we can give them every evidence under the sun, and it's not going to crack that armor. So what I would suggest is that you, that you use the John 3, uh, 5 approach, and you ask the missionaries, listen, let's set all of the doctrine aside. Let's just, I just want to know, have you been born again? You can throw the Book of Mormon in, or what the Book of Mormon calls the mighty change. Have you experienced that, elder? Because Jesus gave it as an imperative. You must be to even see the kingdom of heaven. So I want to know if you've been born again. And he's going to say, I have or I haven't, or I'm trying to be. Any one of those answers will open a door up for you to then respond. I'm trying to be. Well, why would you try to be? Or I have or I haven't. And if he says, I have, you can question that. If I have, why haven't you been? So that's the route I would take is try to get them to experience Jesus firsthand. And by they give you the Moroni 10 test, read it, ask God if it's true. Give them the John 3, 5 test. Have you been born again? And so to say, you go to God and you ask him, open my heart, open my eyes, send me your spirit. I don't believe Bradley. I don't believe his books. I don't believe his pastors. But God, you do it. You challenge him to that. Well, the issue is that if I'm challenging him to, to ask God for truth, um, it, it, no scripture points towards um, validating, validating scripture to be true, which is why the Book of Mormon challenge is incorrect. But would using the same challenge against them, not against them, but well, against them, uh, be an appropriate thing to do, would you say? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's, and every situation also is, is individual. It really depends on the person. You're planting seeds first and foremost, Bradley, and that's what we all are doing. We are planting seeds, and God will reap the harvest when His Spirit touches them and moves them, right? And so it's, it's a frustrating, I can hear a sense of bit of frustration, but that's what you're doing. Don't give up. Keep planting the seeds, and it will dawn. It's ha it happens. You can see the fruit of us planting seeds and it coming to it germinating over time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you for your show today. I really love the quotation that if your interpretation of Scripture causes you to love people and, and love God more, it's accurate. I love that. Um, 
So uh, honestly, keep teaching because you're making an impact, not just in the U.S. as it may seem sometimes, but worldwide. So. Thanks, my brother. God bless you. Really good. I look forward to meeting you someday. <laughs> I look forward to it. Oh, wait. Stay on the line. And listen, while you're on the line, talk to Derek or whoever about seeing what it's going to cost if we can ship you a couple cases. I know it's going to be expensive of books so that you can use those to, to disseminate out to people who would read them. Gosh, that would be amazing. Uh, I'd love to do so. Thank okay. you so much. All right, hold on. Hold on the line. Derek, you got it or somebody? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is the off-air question. Sean, I was due to be baptized last Saturday into the LDS church, but noticed the psychological trickery they were causing me to be subject to. I then came across your videos. Glory to God. I rebuke the LDS church. <laughs> Praise God. We're glad you escaped that one. More and more we see that because of the advent of the internet and because of things out there uh, from pioneers who started way long ago, bringing this information out. More and more people are getting it. And I mean, the missionaries go to a door in Japan. They knock on the door. They talk to the housewife. They give the first discussion. The housewife goes in the house. She gets online, looks up Mormons and uh, reads. And they come back the next day and she says, get out of here. And so they're feeling that and they know it. So things are going to have to change. We pray it will change for the better and that the LDS will come into a full understanding of what and who God is and to have that relationship uh, with him through Jesus Christ the Lord. It's funny, we got an email here that makes me think of uh, something I was just saying. Uh, this is a woman who came out. Her name is Sandra. Her husband's name is Derek. And she wrote a rather lengthy email, but she says, My husband and I have never been happier. They left the LDS church. We feel like we're in control of our own thoughts and choices. Strange thing is, listen to this, we never knew we weren't. Isn't that crazy, she asks. And, and it is funny because when you're in it, you don't know. You think you know, but you don't know until the light comes on you see the truth, you understand Christ, and it's just like Isaiah prophesied of the Lord and Savior that he came to break open the prison doors, to unchain those who are bound, to set the captives free, to give blind, uh, seeing, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and when that happens, and it happens to somebody who's been in Mormonism and really believed they were okay, it is the most remarkable thing to observe because every, almost every single person I've ever met who's come out of a totalist method, methodological religion like Mormonism says a weight was lifted, uh, a burden was taken, the scales fell from my eyes, I could see, and that's exactly how the Bible describes what Christ came to do, set the captives free. All right, Jan Greer says, can you recommend a book on the Greek translation I could use with Bible study. Um, a book on Greek translation, I can't, but I can recommend Power Bible. Uh, I like that. There's other uh, uh, tools out there that you can use. Also, there's something that I've used called the interlinear uh, translation. There's also polyglots where they put, uh, Rasmus had did a polyglot where he put the Aramaic, the Latin, the Greek, uh, and the English all next to each other. Polyglots are interesting because you can read across the way. Uh, and you can go to any, uh, go online, usually Christian bookstores, their stuff that might give you Strong's uh, uh, lexicon, 
but Strong's is not nearly as good as Thayer's. And so if you go online, you might get a better idea of what to use. Um, but a New Testament interlinear with the Greek is really helpful because it gives you the English, and then right next to it, it gives you the Greek, and that might help you, Jen. Carlos says, big fan, got a quick question. Would a season one Sean get along with the current Sean and vice versa? Absolutely. Absolutely. My thinking is the same. Uh, the season one Sean might uh, get in an argument and try to belittle season 10 Sean, but uh, in the end, if, we, if both were able to talk reasonably, um, I definitely would agree with season one's ideas. Uh, the only thing that's changed, and I mentioned this last week or the week before, is I have seen that within Christendom, there are just as many problems as there are within Mormonism. The difference is within Christendom, generally speaking, almost always, the true Christ is being preached. And so we give liberty there. With Mormonism, not, not really. I mean, just to be straight with you, not really. Nor the true gospel. So, um, but essentially, I think uh, I would agree. All right, uh, this is from Brandon Davidson, and I'm not going to touch this question with a 10-foot bowl, but he says, I am from a violent family, and guns and violence were a way of life in the past, but thankfully God has delivered us from such a destructive lifestyle, saved me and my parents, and has given us a church that teaches the real gospel. And in spite of all this, I see more and more Christians carrying guns, saying they feel naked without one, I used to feel the same way, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. Uh, do you know of any scriptures I can use to tell my brothers and sisters that shooting someone is a bad way to witness? <laughs> and living by the gun is a sure way to die by it. Well, you quoted probably one of them. Live by the sword, die by the sword. But, you know, at the same time, Jesus did tell his apostles, take up swords, you're going to need them. You can protect yourself as a Christian. And if I make any more comments like that, about half of the people who sit in this live audience pack guns, and I might not live to see the end of this night, including the females. So I am going to stop right there on that one. This is from Rover 7377. Didn't Brigham Young say that Joe Smith now presides over the spirit world? What he said was, he may have said that, that quote sounds familiar, but what he said was, um, Everybody of this dispensation has to pass through Joseph Smith in order to enter into the celestial kingdom. And so over that dispensation, over the spirit world, uh, you might interpret it as being that one and the same. All right, a uh, couple more things and we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and Ben says, my name is Ben. Uh, former LDS, very recently. I've greatly enjoyed the videos. Uh, question, can you recommend a version of the Bible? Obviously, I don't trust the Mormon versions and want uh, and the quad. I want to throw my quad away. Uh, first of all, Ben, I, I love for new Christians, it's called the Pilgrim Edition Bible. The reason I like it is because it has footnotes in it that explain the simplicity of the uh, New Testament. And it's really beautiful. I read it as an early Christian. It's really a teen Bible. It's old, but it's very beneficial for people who have just come out. 
Secondly, I would recommend uh, the Thompson Chain Bible. I like it because they don't give commentary. You don't, you don't read in the Thompson Chain and look down at the bottom and it says, the meaning of rapture is, and this is what it means, or this is supposed to have, it doesn't do any of that. All it does is it has chains of scripture. And so if you read the word uh, God, you look over to the uh, margin and it gives you the index number. It's a chain of scriptures that refer to that topic. The whole thing is chained together. And so when you read it, you're able to go using scripture to understand scripture, not the words of man. Thompson Chain Bible, thank you, brother, uh, is a great version of the Bible for someone who wants to understand the Bible and not just uh, various scholars' interpretations. It's funny because my wife reads uh, a, a translation and... I mean, that thing, it says opposite stuff. After I teach on Sundays, she'll ask me about a certain passage. I'll say, what does your say? And she reads it. And it's a, it's a completely different uh, meaning. It's really fascinating, actually. So we know from that, not to besmirch the, the Word of God, because I love it. It's, it's, it's the Word of God. It's the living Word. But uh, it's the Spirit. As you're reading the Word of God that testifies the truths to us, and, and it's fortified by that second witness. Okay, and then finally, this was interesting. I had a long conversation with this person, uh, and I'm going to try to read it quickly. Um, it's from J-C-J, J-A-Y-C in uh, Tallahassee. I'm Jay, and I'm 16. Now, just listen to this. I'm a Christian, confused Methodist, raised Southern Baptist, I'm kind of confused about a few things, so I'm trying to get as many perspectives as I can to supplement my own reading and interpretation so I can form an educated opinion of my own. Now, this is, this is atypical of the emails we get from teens, but it is, it is in harmony with the general thrust of what teens are going through, uh, many teens. I'm a transgender man. He calls himself a man. When we talked on the phone, Jay made it clear that she was born a, a girl but the doctors decided that, uh, no, was born male, but the doctors decided she was female. They didn't do, I guess, the test. Anyway, I'm currently beginning the long process of physical translation from, uh, uh, transition from female to male. This is a 16-year-old. I, I was on the phone with her, with, her for, with him for an hour yesterday listening to what she, he had to say. The Bible doesn't seem to discuss transgender identity or physical transition much. The Baptist church I grew up in is so firmly against it, that's the main cause of eight years I've had of self-harm, suicidal ideation, and suicidal attempts. The Methodist church that I'm a member of is supportive of my whoa, a transitioning and affirming LGBT people in general. I'm very confused by the extreme difference of opinion since we're all studying the same Bible. I'm also disabled. I'm chronically ill. I've asked both churches for their ideas on why this happens. The Methodist church tells me that God creates us all exactly the way we are. The Baptists say my disabilities are the result of sin entering the world, poisoning his perfect work. They say it's probably not coincidence and that my parents made God angry and I'm their punishment and that I'm uh, being punished by him for something. I don't understand the extreme differences of opinion, but I'm being bombarded by the two uh, for my whole life, and I don't know what to think anymore. A 16-year-old who's asking questions obviously has some issues and troubles and problems. I told him to watch tonight so he could hear me read it. 
Basically, I'm wondering about the core beliefs as Christians. Is God's definition of perfect the same as ours? Are able-bodied, straight, non-trans people and disabled, queer, trans people equal and should be treated as such? Or are disabilities and sexual identities mistakes and therefore not his doing? If so, does this mean the hate is justified? Do I deserve to be targeted by violence because I'm not trying hard enough to correct these mistakes I was born with? Is he loving, forgiving kind of God who creates differences that should be respected and supported, or is he a sadistic, angry God who punishes those who aren't perfect enough? These are really good questions. They're phenomenal. I've been told that questioning the core of our beliefs is wrong because it is not our place to think we could ever understand the will of God. Is it wrong to wonder these things? I've also been told that we should be thinking and wondering about them because they aren't hypothetical issues. People interpretations of the Bible do change the way we treat others. Should we be questioning them? So I called and we talked. And I'll just tell you the answers and the things that I gave. First and foremost, the definition of perfect. I said it means complete. That's what it means. In terms of perfect without sin, Jay? No, you aren't without sin. Neither am I. Neither is anybody else except by faith in Christ Jesus' his shed blood. So in regard to your sexuality, your transgender, your attractions, what you're doing to you, your body and everything like that, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you pursue him in faith? Yes, I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I do with my whole heart. Then you pursue him as whatever you're turning out to be. I'm not going to judge you on what you're turning out to be. That's God's. That's his decision. You come to church. You praise God. You worship Jesus. You do your thing with the living God in whatever body you are. Well, how come there's so much anger about this? Well, hey, Jay, let me ask you this. What if I got blasted by a shotgun and it removed all my uh, man parts? Would I be accepted if I went in the church? What if my wife got a boob job? Would she be accepted? I mean, you were born with some kind of thing. What are we supposed to say? This is a fallen world. Why am I this way, he says. I would suggest you're this way because the world fell into sin and the pollutants and the decisions of people and things like that mess things up. Did God know that would happen? Of course it did. Did it wreck his plan? It didn't. Did he provide us with a savior? He did. Did the, did the Savior talk about transgender or gender identified or LGBT or any of that? No, he didn't. What did he say? He said, come unto me. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Well, how about the way people treat you? I said, look, they're going to treat you. People are people. They will treat you that way, but God will not. You go and seek him. You follow him in faith and you show that you can do that in whatever form you're in. Again, I'm not going to make a decision or try to make a comment on what that is because there's a lot of strange things out there. And yours is one of them, admittedly. Uh, and then he go, and then we talked about one last thing. Uh, uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, but anyway, so pray for Jay and people like Jay and people who struggle with really difficult things and try to hold back the finger that points and try to open the heart that says, hey, let's worship God and let's let him work that out with you. All right. And let's remember that Jay, if he has sin, it isn't limited to whatever he's doing. If that's a sin, he probably lies. 
Jay probably has other problems, gossips, just like me, just like you. And, but God so loved this world, he sent his only begotten son to save us in our sin. And so that is the message we want people to know and not the, not the whole other thing that goes along with it. Finally, Cynthia H., I have struggled for the past five years with a major faith crisis. Watching YouTube videos of you gave me strength to reach out to my pastor in our community and denounce Mormonism after 35 years and become a born-again Christian. God bless you. Praise God. God bless you, Cynthia. We pray that he will be with you as you continue to search for him. And we pray he'll be with all the rest of you as you do the same. Listen, the religion, we're not perfect. Men who run it, women who run the religions, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. I make mistakes every day in terms of my understanding of what we're talking about. So don't follow me, but go to the Lord. Never let go of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us in giving his life, shedding his blood, that we, the author and finisher of our faith, can follow him into the kingdom of our God. And uh, we praise God for what he's done for us. And we have differences of opinion. And I sincerely believe God made us that way so we could learn to love each other and get along in spite of all of our different ideas and opinions. And that's the key to it. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting.